Win at Work and Life with Nikki Bush is a podcast where we explore what it means to win at both work and life. Today, you get to choose how to create a life of meaning and self-expression that includes both your work and life outside the office with your family. Hello to all of our listeners. In this episode, I'll be talking to Sarah-Jane McQuala-King, award-winning radio presenter, best-selling author, journalist, and public speaker. Sarah-Jane, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nikki. So your books and your talks deal with some really deep issues of race, identity, adoption, addiction recovery, and mental health. That is a very serious bag of topics. So who is Sarah Jane and why are you so closely aligned to these deep issues? You know, you say they're deep issues and and I guess they are, but I think they're issues that um, maybe if not all, but an awful lot of them um, touch most people and not just most people, you know, in a certain subset of society, but throughout society across the country and globally. And I'm just one person kind of bringing those issues to the fore. So sure, I, you know, professionally, I'm a radio presenter and I'm a uh, and I'm an author and I do public speaking. But um, when all of that's, you know, not happening, I'm just you know, your average 42-year-old mother trying to survive with a, with a, with a lot of history that um, catches up with one and requires processing. And for me, the processing happens best in writing. And your writing is based on the evolution of your personal story, which is such a fascinating one because it started without your permission from the time you were conceived across the color line in South Africa and were whisked out of the country because it was pretty much illegal um, and, and you lost your identity from before you were born. You didn't know what yeah. your roots were and you had no choice in the matter. So tell us a little bit about how your first book, uh, Killing Caroline, relates to these issues. And I, I do think that you know, these deep issues, while I say they're deep, and as you say, they you know, everybody has a version of them. Because you're able to tell your story, which you do so amazingly through your books, it brings it alive for people and they start to be able to see that they may have a par- parallel journey going on. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good point. So I mean, so I was born Caroline King in in August 1980, um, and my biological dad, um, is from Limpopo and my biological mother is from Yorkshire in the north of England and they met while working at a hotel in Johannesburg which still exists the Balalaika uh, still exists and they met and they formed this relationship and I was the product of that relationship and as you say you know I in because of the the things that were going on in the country at the time um, it meant that that relationship was illegal and that um, he certainly would have been um, in an awful lot of trouble had it been discovered and so was taken to the UK. And that was, I guess, sort of part one of the losing of my identity. And then to be adopted into a family, the, the act of adoption, if not done well and carefully and consciously for anybody, whether it be for a black child into a white family or for um, same race um, adoptions, is an erasure of identity. And that's why that's something that I'm hugely passionate about and I speak an awful lot about um, is the the process of adoption and why the 
adoptees need to start being centered in that process of adoption because to not do that and that really kind of takes me into the second book of what happens when the trauma of that and I don't use that word lightly it's a traumatic experience isn't dealt with um, in those very very formative years so yeah I, I I do I do try and shine a light on those things even if it's only going to help one person even if another adoptee picks up either of the books and says that's me and that's how I felt and that's validating or an adoptive parent sits for one minute and says actually we have failed our child in this area and we can now turn that around even if it's somebody who is struggling with mental health who says you know what I'm going to make that appointment today I'm going to try and get an appointment with somebody who can help me or whether it's somebody in active addiction who thinks tomorrow I'll stop using tomorrow I'll stop using and tomorrow never comes. Let's go back to what you were saying about the trauma of adoption because I think what you're alluding to is the breaking of the initial bond with the birth mother or the birth parents and obviously having to reconnect with people who aren't your birth parents and so that um, trauma you're saying that you know adoptive parents and the system needs to identify that trauma more keenly because it creates a hole in your soul which so many people who have been adopted who go to seek their adoptive families ultimately um, it's like a yearning isn't it yeah, yeah, it's a deep visceral something that goes beyond our cerebral understanding. There's a guy that I write about in in Mad Bad Love, and it was such a it was such a key moment in my life. I was about two years clean, uh, and I went to I got invited to go to a lecture, and I was back living in London. I got invited to a lecture, and there's a psycho a psychotherapist by the name of Paul Sunderland, and he was doing an interview uh, a lecture, sorry, about the link between uh, adoption and addiction. And in that lecture, he spoke about the, exactly as, as you've just said there, that the impact of that severance between an infant, now it doesn't matter whether that infant is one day old, a hundred days old, um, it is as keenly felt that, and it's not something, and here's what I found fascinating. He said, it's not remembered, but it can be recalled. And I thought that's fascinating because of course I don't remember the moment at which my biological mother disappeared. I was seven weeks old, but my limbic system doesn't know what seven weeks old is. My limbic system is the same limbic system that I have at 42 as that I had at, at, uh, at seven weeks old. And something happened in that moment. And he actually joined me on my show. It was so beautiful last adoption month, last November. And, and he didn't know that I was at that lecture. And I said to him, you know, I was at that lecture and what you said changed my life. And it really did because it suddenly gave me permission to feel all the feelings I felt because the narrative around adoption and it continues to be, and it's a harmful one is it's a win-win. It's, you know, the saving of children and all these children need to be saved. And, and that really isn't the case. There is a very, very, very small percentage of children who are legally adopted, who need to be. It's a very small number. There are other processes that can happen that give a child a familial support without the erasure of identity and familial links that very often happens. And he said to me last year during the interview, Paul Sunderland, you know, the reason 
that so many adopted people end up in treatment centres and in jails and we're four times more likely to attempt suicide, four times more likely. He said it's because that severance that happens feels life-threatening. And I thought, sure. That that's it. That is that is it for me. I can't speak for all adoptees, but I know an awful lot of us, and an awful lot of us nod our heads when, when people's you know when we share our experiences, and and when thank goodness experts like Paul uh, talk about this stuff in terms that can't be denied, right? Mm, I love that word severance. Uh, you know, bonding is the opposite opposite of severance, and. The fear that gets set up when bonding doesn't take place between mother and child is it, 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 it's, um, it's deep. You know, we have cellular memory. You were talking about yeah, your limbic exactly. system. I talk about cellular memory. Your body remembers. Your cells yeah. know everything. They carry your entire history. And so yeah. when things happen in your life, they get triggered. Uh, and that's why you can have that response. So it's little, it's no surprise that you talk about the fact that the suicide rate is, you know, four, four times more likely in adoptees and that um, the likelihood of addiction um, and alcoholism is huge because, yeah, because you're trying to fill a hole in your soul that you can't even name. Yeah. And the- it's Yohan Hari who says the opposite of, of uh, addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And that is so key. When, and I, you know, for, for me as, as a recovering addict, sobriety is wonderful. Sobriety is, sobriety is the byproduct of, of the reconnection, right? Because right. I had to reconnect. I had to reconnect with my feelings. I had to reconnect with the things that were making me uncomfortable, people, places, and things we talk about in recovery. And so for adoptees, it's, it's so obvious that so many of us end up using whatever it may be whether it be behavioral addictions or substance addictions because we're desperate for that connection and and for me as I talk about in in mad bad love even when I got clean I there was still a connection that was missing and it was that base thing of that it, we talk about it in you know we could call it codependency we could call it love addiction we could call it attachment disorder or all of the above a basket of all of those things which is that that connection and and you can't underestimate what happens when that connection that primary human base connection is severed yes i talk about the fact that every human being is desperate for a sense of togetherness and belonging and for every one of us togetherness and belonging looks like something different Mm-hmm. And for you and for me, we've had different life journeys. So, um, you know, you were seeking something that maybe I had all along. But in other areas of my life, I'm perhaps seeking something that you've had all along. So all of our yeah. life journeys are so different. But um, I think we have to understand that, that our need for belonging, for togetherness and for the right kind of attention is also important. Now, attention, I just want to go back to the bonding because you're also a mum of of a a toddler, three-year-old, I think, Um, and and, and you're a working mum and you're balancing a number of jobs and and gigs at the same time. So perhaps we can switch to talking about, you know, work-life integration because what I think people underestimate, but it speaks to your point here, is that uh, we have to find a way as we work and we parent 
to connect authentically with our children so that they feel a sense of belonging and togetherness because I have watched in all the years that I've been in the parenting field, so many children with parents, not adoptees, with biological parents who feel completely disconnected. And you can see it from the time they're very, very young. Um, And they're screaming out for attention. And if there's one thing human beings want, it's to be noticed. And for people to pay the right kind of attention. And if people are feeling like they are being shut out, like they're not high on the list of priorities, if their parents are not seeing them, not hearing them, if they don't feel important to their parents, what happens is that children and adults do exactly the same thing, I must tell you, um, they resort to negative attention-seeking behavior. And that negative attention-seeking behavior can look like tantrums, can look like sulking, can look like anger, can look like breaking things. Um, You know, you will know this having had a, a young child, you know, you're on a deadline, you've got to get out the door. And what happens? The baby needs a nappy change. The baby vomits on your outfit. And it's I think there's such a connection. They pick up your tension. They pick up that you're now in a rush. They pick up that they've dropped down on the list of priorities. And the only way to get your attention is to do something, to act out. And, um, you know, when you talk about uh, addiction, of course, you know, replacing that bond, that mother-child bond with something else is the logical journey is that you will find something else. And often, of course, what children are doing today is substituting that bond with technology because it's become a um, a companion, even though it's not warm and three-dimensional and fuzzy. um, It fills a gap, but it doesn't fill the hole in the soul. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the it's it's such a it's such an addict thing of the kind of the immediate uh, gratification or the immediate comfort or the immediate you know the it's you know it's Maslow and 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 one's hierarchy of needs, isn't it? And it's that whole idea of 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 your need your your immediate need not being met, and so let me find something that will will meet it. Um, because I can always guarantee um, that, you know, pills will, will make me feel okay. I can always guarantee that booze is going to make me feel okay. I can always guarantee that the control that I get from anorexic restriction will make me feel okay and safe. Um, and, it, and it's all of those things. And it's so interesting that you say that about the, you know, parenting. So my daughter, she's going to be three in November and she's in, you know, and I hate when people say the terrible twos because she's not being terrible. She's just being two. Um, but I, me and her father, um, but who's also, you know, in recovery and who I write about in, in, in Mad Bad Love is we find her behavior really triggering. Um, and we've, and, and even saying that out loud, there is like a guilt aspect, right? Cause you're just meant to love your kids and go, oh God, well, they're just amazing. And of course we love her, but we are also people with a past who's, whose own experiences of what it meant to be parented are very different. Um, you know, and and also for me, you know, my mum didn't have to go to work until we were much older, my brother and I, and she was able to spend that time. And, and the guilt that I feel, this is an interesting thing, I'm going off on tangents here, but um, the guilt, the working mom guilt is just, it keeps me awake at night. Mm. It really does, and it's awful. And, and I feel... 
you know, I, I have to work all the jobs that I work in order to kind of keep a roof over our head and do the providing. And of course, I wanted to go to a good school. But I sometimes think, is the acting out toddlerness? Is she just being a toddler? Or is she saying, give me more attention, mummy? And the deadline thing, I mean, you know this as well. Nikki, you know, you're working to a deadline, you're working to a deadline. And then, you know, chaos happens, mm. off, you know, off stage, right? And you think, why are you doing this right now? I'm trying to, you know, and it's, and it's, 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 parenting is nothing like I thought it was going to be. It's, it's wonderful in a way I didn't think it was going to be. And it's hard and terrifying and triggering in a way that requires me to look at myself, my past and the, and the type of parent that I want to be. It's really hard. I was a great parent before I had kids. Oh, that's the great saying, isn't it? You know, and, yeah. and kids are the acid test. Um, well, maybe to comfort you, I wanted to tell you that parenting is probably the most incredible personal development adventure you will ever have. You will never recover from it. Um, <laughs> and, and, and here's the thing. It's bloody and it's messy and it's a huge leap of faith half the time. Nobody has all of the answers and you've got to dig deep into that intuition. And I think that, you know, children just want to know that they're loved and it's to find ways to connect with them that are not contrived. And one of the best things to do as a busy working mum is at the end of the day, when you walk into the house, you know, we're so control orientated and you know, we walk in at the end of the day and now we must bath and we must have dinner and we must do all those things. And there's a checklist that we go through in our heads, which makes us feel terribly guilty because we'll never get to the end of the checklist. But one of the most amazing things you can do is to walk through the door, drop your handbag, your computer bag, take off your shoes and lie on the floor and do nothing. And let your child discover you with no agenda. And she will mm. crawl all over you, lie on top of you, lie next to you, stroke your face, pull your hair, poke your eyes, kiss you, whatever, but no agenda. Don't direct her and just let her reconnect with you because what happens with kids is so interesting. When they haven't seen you all day, in order to protect themselves, they put themselves in a tower, like Rapunzel. And they build up these emotional walls to protect themselves while they don't have you. But they don't know how to get out of the tower. We have to get them out of the tower at the end of the day. So lying down and letting her come to you without forcing anything to happen, it's really such a heartwarming moment and a quite a nice... Um, uh, segue between work and the rest of the evening stroke day whatever it is for you um, because your defenses are down and you're not in that sergeant major mode which gee whiskers I have over the years found myself wake up come on open the curtains time to get up get dressed <laughs> military operation there we go and I really do and I kids resist because, and, and you know you know the thing is Nikki also and, and I maybe don't need to do it so much, but but for the first 18 months of my daughter's life, her father, and I, you know, I write about this in Mad Bad Love, and that's really the essence of it. Her father was in active addiction, active heroin addiction, and I was in chaos. And I was I was struggling to self-regulate me and and everyone else around me, right? So in order to make sure that because we never knew when the table was going to be flipped. We never knew when the relapse was going to happen. We never knew when the chaos was going to hit. And so I literally, everything that I could control, and I'm a huge control freak anyway, because I'm an addict and I'm an addict in recovery. 
everything I could control, I controlled. And it to the down to, you know, when we were all gonna use the bathroom, when this was gonna happen. And it felt safe. It felt safe in, in a time of, of absolute chaos. And and even though we're not in that chaos anymore, um, it's been a, it's a throwback. It feels um, unsafe to to leave that. And so I've I've had to be very conscious about finding coming out of a traumatic experience and allowing myself to have moments of joy and moments of um, where everything's not pre-programmed. And so with that that lying on the floor, I'm going to give that a go because I've also noticed that my daughter's fallen in line with it, right? So she knows that when she gets home, supper's on the table, then it's this. And of course, a routine is wonderful for children, but but my routine came from a place of fear and I yes. don't want her routine to come from a place of fear. Yes, so of course, routine, as you mentioned, is important because it provides some kind of security and predictability. And that's very important mm -hmm. when you have children is that there's predictability. And I think the one thing that we have to guard against is that we're not kind of in a military regime of minute by minute. And, you know, if you get stuck in a traffic jam and you're running 20 minutes late for bath time, don't freak out. Just make sure bath time is, 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 is still happening when you get home because it's the order and the sequence that actually keeps us all sane. Um, and keeping the order and the sequence the same whether it's 20 minutes out or 10 minutes late or 10 minutes early, doesn't matter. Your child knows what the sequence is going to be, which also gives you that stability that you know, uh, you know what the next thing is on the list, even if it's running a few minutes late. Um, but it, it's so interesting how these things are so interconnected, our need for attention, our need for control, our need for bonding. And I think that you've made that very clear in everything that you've shared with us so far. So let's uh, move on to, um, we've spoken a little bit about work and motherhood. We've spoken a bit about adoption and addiction. Um, and you also are a woman in business. So what are some of those lessons, those key lessons uh, you'd like to share with women in business or showing up as a powerful woman in your own life, not compared to anyone else, but in your own life? What does that look like for you? I think for me, you know, and so it's, it, I'm 15 years clean and sober today. And, and so I was, you know, I was, I was 27 when I went into, went into treatment and I, up until my career, up until that point, which had been fairly short, you know, I'd maybe sort of five years, but I thought that, you know, and, and the media industry can be quite cutthroat and there's always 10 other people, a hundred other people, a thousand other people behind you that want a job. And so I really just dove in, you know, again, in that very kind of addictive workaholic way. And, and since, being, um, since being in recovery, and I think really in the last, maybe even in the last sort of five years, the thing that I've realized is that I can't, I can't give my, and it's, it's a realization and acknowledgement. It's not necessarily something I can always put into practice and that's okay. But it's that I can't, you know, that I can't give from an empty pot. Um, or an empty cup. So that, that's been a real learning curve for me, but also it's something I try really hard to, to remember when I'm trying to show up for, you know, things. And I say, yes, people ask me to do stuff all the time. Can you come and talk here? Can you come and talk there? And I always say yes. And then I inevitably think, you don't have the capacity for that, SJ. You need to think about what you can do. And I'm getting better at saying no. And then I think the other thing for me, particularly given the job that I do, 
um, is that there's, you know, the, the veneer sort of thing of, of being a person, and you'll know this, I hate the term in the public eye, but, you know, a, a sort of public-ish profile is that there's an expectation, and I'm not quite sure where it comes from. I don't even think it's necessarily from out there. It may, may even been a self, may even be a self-imposed self expectation that one is always on and one is always kind of perfect and one always has the answers. And if there's one thing that I think I can say, and I would hope people say about me, is that I, I show up authentically. Um, and that doesn't mean that if I'm having a bad day, everyone knows about it. But it just means that I, there's there's things, and I think again this comes from from being the type of author that I am and and the genre that I write in in terms of memoir. You can't not be honest in that genre, otherwise, what's the point in writing? So for me, you know, while I go to work and I do the radio show, and people might not necessarily know, oh gosh, well you know, her daughter threw a fit before she came to work or whatever. They know that they know who I am. They know my background. They know where I'm coming from. They know I'm somebody who has, has dealt with addiction and, and mental health issues. Um, because you know what, in, in being that authentic, in being in being who I say I am and, and who I say I am on the tin, it takes an awful lot of pressure off me, right? A massive amount of pressure. Um, I often look at these, you know, influencers on, on Instagram and, and social media and I think, you must be exhausted because there's no way, there's no way your life is like this all the time. And to constantly put up with, and I know about living with veneers and, and masks and things because I did it for a long time before I got clean, right? So I know all about that. And it's really, really tiring. So yeah, it's, it's my thing has been around letting people know who I am. And that requires vulnerability, right? And vulnerability as a woman in business or as a professional woman, isn't people don't always like that. Um, but I've I've started. I, people need to start liking it, and I've I hope that you know. And I've worked for big corporates in my life and small companies, and they've always known what my deal is around mental health stuff. They've always known that because it's not it's it's not for me to hide. It's not anything. They have a duty to support me in that. I bring it, I bring, I work hard. You know, I, I do, I really do work hard. But there might be times where I'm not well and you as an employer need to support me in that. Sorry, it's reciprocity. Yeah, so you're talking about working hard. Yeah. You're also talking about working hard on yourself. And yeah. I think that that is the key to your continued evolution your continued reinvention and we have to keep reinventing ourselves to stay relevant in the world and yeah. you do that by sharing your very real and authentic life journey through your memoirs so let's go back before we start wrapping up this this interview killing caroline which was published in 2017 is a memoir and it's a memoir that deals with finding your roots discovering belonging all over again and fitting in now the one thing we haven't spoken about today is the issue of race and identity um and and you were a product product of a mixed relationship and you landed up living in an entirely different country and not knowing who you know your where your roots were um how did that impact you on this thing called fitting in 
massively. You know, my blackness is something I can't ever take off. It doesn't matter whether I grew up, you know, going to Pony Club in Surrey as the only black kid or whether I, you know, um, live in Soweto for, for five years. Um, my my identity it's it's an enormous part of my identity and it's sort of, and and coming back to south africa as a black person of mixed heritage was difficult it's being tra being a transracial adoptee is is a whole other ball game and that's you know i i am one voice in many 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 who share our experiences, whether it be in book form or, you know, there's now a whole TikTok generation, which I love of transracial adoptees um, sharing their stories. And and our identity um, as as non, as, as people of color, uh, in, in often in families, in, in white families, because that tends to be the way around it goes. Um, it's it's hugely important and it's something you know that that even today while I feel a lot more comfortable in in who I am as a black woman um, coming back to South Africa um, we're still we are nowhere near where we need to be for for for, for an awful lot of things and so there's there was there was initially even when I wrote the book um, even when I wrote Killing Caroline and, and, and I got asked to go onto a panel once, a book panel, um, for, at a book festival to talk about the coloured experience. And I was like, I, what are you talking about? How on earth am I meant to talk about the coloured experience? That's not at all my, my racial, um, identity. Um, and, and I think as South Africans, we struggle, we struggle with that. We're still struggling with who people are and because, because for so long we were told, what literally what boxes we we had to fit into um but yeah i i am a very proud black south african woman and um you know that's that's who i am and, and my daughter will identify in whatever way she feels comfortable identifying but um yeah listen it's uh, talking about race in south africa in 2022 is still difficult it's still difficult was there a huge sense of relief when you retraced your roots and you discovered your father? Did it change things for you? Um, I, in, a, in a sense, I guess it did. I mean, it was, I wanted to know who I was. I wanted to know where I came from. I wanted to know who do I look like. To, to grow up for 27 years and not, look like anybody in in the group of people you call your family is a is quite a lonely experience that you know particularly in a, in a transracial situation um and i think also meeting dad um at the time at which i did you know that the, the the years preceding had been quite unpleasant in terms of my i'm not even going to call it a relationship with my biological mother because there isn't one but um i tried to have a relationship with my half brother um, her her um, second child and and that had that had been difficult um she had made it very clear she wanted nothing to do with me so there was then this this sort of secondary rejection which was so painful so then when when I met dad and, and my siblings and I was received in a complete in totally the opposite way of just acceptance love you are a makwala you know all of that stuff um that was that was wonderful um but but again 
it didn't stop what happened from happening. I, I spoke to the other day, I did a, I did a thing with, with Mornay and Celeste Nurse and Zephanie Nurse. Um, they just released their documentary about Zephanie's abduction. And we were doing a, a Q&A on stage and Mornay said something that really struck me. And he said, you know, I might have got my daughter back 17 years later, but I will go to the grave with the wound that happened when she was taken. And I thought, I absolutely relate to that. I, you know, I could meet every single family member um, who, you know, ever. And the thing that happened, the thing that caused me the most pain in my life ever that I can't remember, but that I can recall, will still have happened. I think that is a very poignant truth uh, for any kind of trauma, any kind of separation, uh, any kind of loss, because actually what you were experiencing was loss and grief from the time you were born. Uh, you know, and so you've been marinated in that, in essence. So, yes, you're not going to be able to remember it, but you can always recall it. Sarah Jane, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you and, and thank you for joining us today. What really struck me about this conversation, just a couple of things, is obviously your two very profound books. Uh, so Killing Caroline, your memoir of belonging, roots, fitting in, those are my words of describing your book. And your second one, your latest one, which came out in 2022, Mad Bad Love, which in essence for me is about saving yourself because no one else is coming to save you and taking responsibility for your own journey and your own wounds and your own healing of those wounds and, and being interested and curious to unpack your journey. Not everybody is as brave as you uh, to go back and unpack that journey. But wow, to be 15 years sober, that's such an amazing milestone. And you said that that's today. So we celebrate that with you today. Fantastic. Where can our listeners get hold of your amazing books and you? Um, you can find me on all social, I sound like a, a, a generation Xer, on all social media platforms at This Is SJ King. Uh, and the books are available at exclusives, uh, at Reader's Warehouse, uh, all over the place, everywhere, online as well. Fantastic, because Sarah Jane McQuala King is everywhere. You just have to Google her and you will find her. And yeah, I just want to mention a couple more, a couple more really important points that, that came up there that I think are worth repeating. Everyone has a story. Everyone is journeying with something. Um, that very strong link that Sarah spoke about between adoption and addiction cannot be denied. And that while we may not remember our traumas, they can be recalled because of cellular memory. And I think uh, what you said there, that the opposite of addiction is connection. If there is one really wise, profound statement that I'm taking away from this conversation today, it's that. And we need to remember that addiction is not just about drugs and alcohol and sex. Addiction can be work. Addiction can be food. Addiction can be anything. Absolutely anything so you need to discover your hole in your soul and what you are filling it with and then find different ways to connect with yourself and others to pull yourself out of that hole so on that point thanks once again to sarah jane mcquala king and to our listeners i would love to hear your takeaways from this podcast with our inspiring guest today 
drop your comments in the chat below or email me at info at nickybush.com. And of course, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to empower them to win at work and life too.